when we're talking or writing. We usually connect our ideas together between clauses and sentences, right? What is talking but just lots of different ideas jumping between two people? What is writing but lots of different ideas being pushed together into different paragraphs? What is uh, other, other mediums? What's a presentation but lots of ideas organized in a linear way? What we say or write is related to what was said or written before it. Unless we're making a clean break and we're, we're starting a new idea, which happens all the time too. Ideas are connected. And in a way, language is nothing more than just a bunch of ideas put together. Okay, hello, 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 and welcome back to the Clark and Miller English Podcast. And if this is your first time here, then just welcome. Good to have you here. Uh, yes, we continue to grow according to these numbers that I see on the screen, which just seems very surreal. Um, yeah, um, loads of people on Spotify. Um, welcome, one and all. And yeah, um, good to see that some people kind of must be finding this at least interesting or something. Anyway, I do. So um, I'm going to keep doing it anyway. Um, before we get started, uh, very quickly, don't forget to go to our website. If you're just a blog, um, if you're just a podcast listener, remember there's loads of free stuff you can get if you go to clarkandmiller.com. We've got a huge blog with almost 200 uh, posts about all sorts of weird things. And um, if you if you have a look around the site, you'll be offered uh, free free books as well um, with those uh, sometimes quite annoying pop up menus. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, check it out, clarkandmiller.com. Loads and loads of stuff for you to uh, work on your English with. Um, today is going to be quite a, a weird one. Um, the beginning sounds like a classic sort of grammar question, because I did get a classic grammar question from one of our readers, um, Hannah, from Vietnam. And it starts with what seems like a traditional sort of grammar analysis I suppose but as this podcast episode develops it gets deeper and deeper into much more philosophical and interesting areas and we, we, we talk about how language evolves we talk about um, um, how grammar doesn't we, we don't always need grammar for meaning you know we have sentences like no shirt no tie no service without grammar but what's going on there um how we begin sentences with old information and finish with new information, uh, why we really use the passive, how language is just a bunch of ideas shoved together. So, like I said, the beginning of the episode is going to be very grammary, and frankly, if you're bored by that, just skip to about 15 minutes, um, and it starts to get a bit more trippy and interesting and introspective, and maybe controversial as well. Um, yes, I'm looking forward to some emails from people who disagree with me. Those are my favorite emails. Okay, anyway, so yeah, let's just get started. Um, yeah, we're going to start with a letter from Hannah. Okay, here we go. Okay, so yeah, I'd like to start today by reading an email I got from one of our uh, listeners or readers. I can't figure out <laughs> where she knows us from called Hannah from Vietnam. Um, here it is. I'll just start with Hannah, the beginning of Hannah's email. Dear Mr. Clark, 
Yeah, formal. I like it. Uh, I am Hannah from Vietnam. I have a question related to grammar, which I cannot find a satisfactory answer on the internet. So I have decided to ask you, my favorite English teacher. Oh, thank you, Hannah. I have been confused about the rules for reducing non-defining relative clauses. As far as I've been taught, we can reduce a relative clause by removing the relative pronoun and turning the main verb into v i n g form if the clause is active and past participle if the clause is passive. Okay, so what she's talking about here is when we take a sentence like, "I watched the band who were playing Ramstein." And instead, say, I watched the band playing Ramstein, or Yasmin, who was annoyed by all the shouting, left the party early. And instead, say, Yasmin, annoyed by all the shouting, left the party early. Yeah, you can see what's happening here, right? It's a neat little trick. It's kind of like a relative clause, but more casual, more just sort of. Casually giving a reason or some extra information about something, like the band. You know, they're playing Ramstein. Extra information or Yasmin.、Uh, she's annoyed by all the shouting.、Uh, extra information. Okay, so far so good. Actually, we have got a blog post on this, which yeah, this blog post、uh, we published ages ago, twenty seventeen.、Uh, ing or two. Part two: subjects, objects, and extra information. And in this blog post, we cover this、uh, reduced relative clause thing.、Um, but yeah, don't worry about it too much. It's just、uh, an example for now. And Hannah also goes on in her email to give these examples. One: Brian, who wanted to make an impression on Anna, took her to a luxurious restaurant, and that becomes Brian. Wanting to make an impression on Anna, took her to a luxurious restaurant. So Brian, who wanted, becomes Brian wanting.、Uh, and two, our old house, which was built in 1920, collapsed last year.、Uh, so and that becomes、uh, our old house, built in 1920, collapsed last year. Right. I'm not going to go into the details of how to form these, but you get the idea of what's going on. Um, Hannah goes on to point out why she's confused, and this is where Hannah's problem emerges.、Um, and this problem ended up being really interesting, and it kind of made me think about all sorts of other things—things、uh, things about English, things about language, things about the way we think as human beings, and things that make speaking English or any other language sort of easier in a way, because it's related to how we organize our thoughts. Um, I, she, yeah, this email made me think about things that really make a connection between language and the human condition, how we organise our thoughts and our speech to communicate as effectively as possible. Things that really made me think about how amazingly advanced we are, but also somehow how communication can also be really simple. Language is so cool. Like the more you learn about it, the more you realize it's it's super advanced, but also weirdly limited and simple at the same time. Fun things, interesting things, things that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But first, I want to cover some very quick terminology.、Um, let's talk about the modifiers and the modified. 
God, that sounds like an 80s action film, doesn't it? The modifiers. What do they do? They go around changing people's faces? I don't know. Yeah, let's talk about the modifiers and the modified. Uh, The modifier is a thing that changes a thing. So (laughs) in the phrase, a massive giraffe, massive is the modifier, the thing that's giving more information about something, and giraffe is the modified, right? So like you have a giraffe and then we say massive giraffe, we've modified the giraffe a little bit by telling telling us that it's massive. Uh, this is a typical example of using an adjective. Uh, adjectives are classic modifiers. We put the adjective before the noun. The modifier before the modified. Very typical in English. Let's look at some more examples. Uh, let's look at the phrase absolutely ridiculous. Uh, we have the modifier, absolutely, before the modified, ridiculous. Absolutely modifies ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Goes before the modified. Okay, you're with me? Good. Um, actually, yeah, most of the time, modifiers tend to come before the modified in English. It's one of those languages. Um, yeah, lots of examples. A very fast hippopotamus, uh, an endless rant, eternal damnation, a coffee shop, and so on. Fast modifies hippopotamus, very modifies fast, very fast hippopotamus. Um, Endless modifies uh, rant, eternal modifies damnation, coffee modifies shop. You know, what type of shop is it? It's a coffee shop, and so on. But sometimes, especially when they're more than just one or two words, these modifiers actually come after the modified. And this is most common with relative clauses. Uh, Examples. Uh, I was talking to some guy who wanted to sell me magazines about tarot cards. Um, So I was talking to some guy who wanted to sell me magazines. Who wanted to sell me magazines is the modifier and some guy is the modifier. We're talking mainly about the guy, not about the fact he wanted to sell me these terrible magazines. Uh, So yeah, the modifier comes after the modified. Another example, the house that Dan built. That Dan built is the modifier and the house is the modified. We're talking mainly about the house, not Dan. Dan is just, Dan building the house, that's just extra information. So yeah, all of these modifiers come after the modified. The house that Dan built the person who wanted to sell me magazines about tarot cards before I told him to go away. So, in short, you tend to get modifiers both before and after the modified. This isn't a strict rule in English. Um, They can occur either side of the modified. Okay, got it? Modifiers, modified, 80s action film. Now, let's go back to Hannah's example, the reduced relative clause. Uh, Brian who wanted to make an impression on Anna becomes Brian wanting to make an impression on Anna took her to a luxurious restaurant. Wanting to make an impression on Anna is the modifier. And what's it modifying? Brian. Brian is the modified. So in this case, we've got the modifier after the modified, just like a relative clause, which makes sense because this is a reduced relative clause. So far, so good, right? No surprises. Cool. Okay. But here is where Hannah has an issue. I'm going to quote her email again. 
I was confused when I tried changing the position of the reduced clauses by putting them before the nouns. She gives two examples of each. Brian, wanting to make an impression on Anna, took her to a luxurious restaurant. Or, wanting to make an impression on Anna, Brian took her to a luxurious restaurant. Okay. So yeah, this modifier can go before or after. Her other example, our old house built in 1920 collapsed last year. Built in 1920, our old house collapsed last year. Same thing happening, right? The modifier just goes before. The reduced relative clause goes before or after. They both work. Uh, She says, uh, Hannah says, uh, the meaning of the whole sentence stays the same. But do you think that the reduced relative clauses now modify the verbs instead of the nouns? Or was I complicating it? And to that, I say, yes, a very, very, very good question. Um, she's right. Changing the position of the modifier here doesn't change the meaning of the sentence. It's still modifying the same thing, right? In this case, Brian or our old house. There may be a stronger emphasis on the sentence as a whole in the second examples, but the modifiers can only refer to Brian or the house because only Brian wants in this sentence. Only the house was built um, in the second sentence. Uh, Does it emphasize different parts of the sentence? Well, that's a good question, and we will come back to that later as we get deep into this topic. At the moment, we're still just talking about grammar. It's going to get more more rich, more heavy, more deep, more thick, more soupy, I hope. Let's see. Um, But yeah, we'll come back to that. But this moving the modifier around, this whole thing about moving it before and after the modified, this made me think. So, you know, English is a very, very obsessive language. It is totally mental about word order. If you move things around, even if they should make sense, like, it just sounds weird. And English, everyone panics, you know, like... um, Word order is very, very strict in English compared to a lot of other languages. When we change the order of things, we usually end up with chaos. So how come this is okay? I mean, this is a big shift, right? We're moving a big modifier before and after something, and we have no cases anymore. So how can we tell what it's modifying? Well, there are two things that tell us what it's modifying. At least two things. Context and intonation. And maybe also things like facial expressions, eye contact and gestures if you're in the room uh, with the person you're talking to or on Zoom. So there's more than two things, isn't it? But um, context and intonation are, are major parts of this. But none of these things that really help us understand that we're talking about Brian come from grammar or syntax, from any sort of language code. How do we know we're still talking about Brian when we move this modifier? It's not language. It's not, well, it is language. It's not grammar. It's not syntax. And the more and more I read about language, the less of a system, like a kind of mathematical system it feels to me. If you've listened to this podcast before, you're probably aware that I I feel this way very strongly. Um, we, we weren't born with this innate grammatical system that we just activated uh, as, we, as we grew up. We evolved language. As humans evolved, we evolved 
language too. Not only did we evolve language, but language evolved with us. Our culture, our intonation patterns, our gestures, our facial expressions, our eye contact, and yes, our grammar too. It's not a forgotten part, it's just a small part. All of this stuff evolved together. And by the way, before I get any angry emails, especially from Chomskyists, um, this isn't all stuff I worked out myself. I am nowhere near smart enough for that. I wish I, I had come to these conclusions myself, but no, my brain is not big enough. Um, these are the views of a lot of modern evolutionary linguists. Um, this is stuff I've been reading a lot on recently. And, you know, I'm stating this as fact. Uh, this is obviously still um, in the air in the linguistics world. But so far, I'm pretty convinced. And uh, yeah, I've been reading a, a lot of this uh, stuff recently. And it's probably why it made me think about Hannah's email so much. So let's dive into this a little deeper. Um, one of my favourite linguists at the moment is uh, Daniel Everett. He's in this, f this field of evolutionary linguists. Uh, and uh, one of my favourite quotes about language comes from him. Uh, this is the quote. Language is exactly what the culture needs it to be. And this is what I think we're seeing in Hannah's email. Let's look at some more examples. If you say something like, Brian, wanting to make an impression on Anna, took her to a luxurious restaurant. You'll just know from context, from culture, that this is the same as wanting to make an impression on Anna, Brian took her to a luxurious restaurant. There's no confusion about what is the modifier and what's the modified, whether it goes before or after. We, we just know. In fact, there is no other interpretation of this sentence except that Brian is the one who wanted to make an impression. Like I said, only Brian can want something. Taking, the verb in the sentence, taking can't want. A luxurious restaurant can't want. And because of the context of the situation, Brian taking Anna to the restaurant, we know Anna doesn't want in this case. We make sense of this sentence despite the ambiguity. Our cultural knowledge, knowing that restaurants and verbs don't tend to desire things, and our contextual knowledge, figuring out that Brian is doing the wanting, do the work for us. Not the grammar. Not the speech side of language. It's not a good term. I can't think of a best term, but not the words and syntax and stuff like that not anything that you can actually point at within the sentence itself. It's outside the sentence. It's us that makes sense of this. Another example of this uh, phenomenon, again, courtesy of Dan Everett, um, is the following sign. I'm going I'm to read you a sign. Um, a sign that you might see in a posh restaurant or a private members club or somewhere basically where people really care too much about clothes. And there are too many of those places still. Anyway, the sign says, no shirt, no tie, no service. What does it mean? No shirt, no tie, no service. Well, we know what it means. We can easily figure the meaning of this out. How? Well, not through grammar or syntax. There's practically no grammar in this sentence or syntax to speak of. Um, each sentence, I guess it's three sentences, each sentence or each each clause, whatever you want to, however you want to divide it, 
they all each all three of them have the same syntax, have the same grammar. Um, that's not going to help us get meaning from this. What helps us? Well, it's our shared cultural knowledge and common sense interpreting the context, and to some extent also the way the speaker says the sentence. No shirt, no tie, no service. The intonation changes on the last one. That makes us understand what's going on. Not the grammar, not the syntax. No code here. It means, of course, you know, if you, if you haven't got there already, if you don't have a shirt or a tie, then you'll receive no service here. We know that the shirt and tie are the condition, and that the service is the result, without the grammar, but with culture and context. And also, seriously, clothes are not that important, honestly. Anyway, that's by the by.、Uh, let's have fun and modify this sign a little.、Um, let's go for the same. Let's say the same syntax, but change it around a little. So remember the first sign: no shirt, no tie, no service. Has no shirt condition, no tie condition, no service result. Right? Let's try a different sort of balance here. No homework. No TV, no candy. No homework, no TV, no candy. Again, exactly the same syntax and grammar, or lack of syntax and grammar, almost.、Uh, but this time, it means if you don't do your homework, you won't get to watch TV and you won't have any candy. We know that the homework is the condition and that the TV and candy are the result. Without any help from grammar, grammar is not being helpful at all here. It's all the same. Each sentence is exactly the same, grammatically speaking. But with a lot of help from our friend culture, and maybe some pronunciation clues, and even facial expressions, body language, eye contact, maybe a bit of pointing at the homework or pointing at the candy, the context gives us everything. Language is giving us nothing here. Or we could argue that the culture and the context is part of the language. I prefer that; it's more inclusive. Culture and context is a part of language. It evolved alongside it, and it informs what the language is. All right. Okay. So, why is this so important? Why am I getting upset? This is really geeky, isn't it?、Um, so what? Well, yeah. Good question. How's this going to help anyone learning English? Well. I think I think it's worth thinking about this when we're learning a language. I see so many people getting bogged down with the mathematics of grammar, really getting deep into the nuances of grammar, sometimes at the expense of thinking about communication. And I get it. Looking at language like a code or a formula is safe and comfortable. I do it all the time, and I I'm thinking about this stuff, but I still approach a lot of my Bulgarian like. Like a system, but language really is just so much more messy and, thankfully, fun and human and context and culture driven than just some boring old system.、Uh, a few episodes back, I talked about the Beatles and how the Beatles changed their sound over their career, starting off simple and basic and evolving into experimental and very elaborate areas, and then. Resimplifying at the end of their career, but this time with a little maturity. And in that episode, I compared the Beatles' journey with learning English—that you improve and improve and improve, technically speaking, until you're almost too good, meaning that you're using the language too elaborately and too technically.
and that you need to hit that final stage where you can make it simple again, but with the strongest and most effective communication. Uh, yeah, a lot of advanced learners of English kind of get stuck at this stage, this uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds Day in the Life sort of period of the Beatles. And this is why. Remember that as human beings, we're lazy. We want to speak less. We want to use less words. If the person you're speaking to has a lot of the same knowledge as you, then you don't have to use so many words. You don't have to make things complicated. It's why we have words like he and then and this and phrases like you know who and the thingy and it happened again. Okay, okay. We get it, right? Okay, language is more than just grammar. I, this, I, I'm honing the point in a little too much here. Okay, let's go back to Hannah and Hannah's sentences. Brian, <laughs> it's becoming comical, isn't it? Brian, wanting to make an impression on Anna, took her to a luxurious restaurant. Or the alternative, wanting to make an impression on Anna, Brian took her to a luxurious restaurant. I mean, they're definitely different sentences, right? So, what might lead someone to choose one of these sentences and not the other? Why would you say the first one or why would you say the second one? There's something, there's a choice there, right? Somewhere. And in one of my replies to Hannah, I recommended her to look into the subjects of theme and ream. What's theme and ream? Good question. Let's talk about theme and ream. A funny thing happened to me this morning. I woke up before my alarm and started to think about this podcast episode. Um, it's quite nice, you know, lying in bed in the morning, fresh head and um, letting your thoughts organize themselves. Um, because actually, to be honest, when I was writing this, I kind of got in a bit of a muddle. Um, it's, it, it was not quite coming together. So, you know, lying down and just thinking doing nothing else but thinking is a good way of solving these problems. Um, so after a bit of a think, not completely solving it, but feeling a bit more organised, um, I went to my terrace and sat down with my, my muesli and my cup of tea and started reading. And the very first sentence I read, I, this was complete coincidence. I mean, I read about language all the time, but the first sentence I read was this. The topic in most languages of the world precedes the comment. In other words, languages prefer to begin their sentences with shared or old information before giving new information. I'm going to read that again. It, it, it was just everything I'd just been thinking about in bed came together in these two sentences. The topic in most languages of the world precedes the comment. In other words, languages prefer to begin their sentences with shared or old information before giving new information. Click. Everything came together. This is the key to theme and ream, which is the topic we're talking about. Uh, the writer, uh, Dan Everett, <laughs> it would not surprise you to know, um, was the writer of these sentences. Um, he's not using the phrases theme and ream. He's using the, the, the terms topic and comment. But for all purposes today, this is, they're essentially the same. So in, in a nutshell, theme is the first bit of a sentence and the ream is the rest of the sentences, rest of the sentence. Um, so 
Yeah, theme is um, the topic and ream is the comment. Uh, theme is basically, this is what I'm talking about. And ream is basically, this is what I'm saying about it. It's like an announcement. Theme is like an announcement. Theme is like saying, okay, this is what we're talking about now. Like, uh, let's look at some examples. Uh, you need to go over the hill and round the corner today. Okay, so you is the theme, and we're talking about you. Everything else is new information. This is the ream. Uh, over the hill and round the corner is where you need to go today. So over the hill and round the corner is the theme. And that's what we're talking about. This is the topic of the sentence or the clause. And the ream is, is the, like, the new information. Today, you need to go over the hill and round the corner. Today is a theme and we're talking about that. And the ream is the new information. Uh, another good example of, of seeing how this sort of functions is uh, in passive sentences. Um, when I was a new teacher, really young, I started, I was like in my early 20s. I look back and it's a completely different guy. Um, bit of an idiot, actually. But I guess we were all idiots in our early 20s, maybe. Anyway, uh, when I was a new teacher, um, one of my students, uh, we, were in a, we were in the cafe on the top floor of this uh, language school in Istanbul. And we were all sitting around a table and it was the early 2000s, so everyone could smoke then. You could smoke anywhere. And uh, we were sit down, sitting down, having a tea together, um, the whole class. And uh, most people were smoking because, as I said, it was the early 2000s. And um, one of them said, teacher, why do we use the passive? And it was like, okay, yeah, I, I wasn't really sure of an answer for that. But I just said, oh, well, yes, it's one of the nice things about uh, English. It's, uh, you could say, and I pointed to this guy, Ilyas, who was smoking a cigarette. Um, Ilyas is smoking a cigarette or the cigarette is being smoked by Ilyas. It's just nice to have some choices, um, which is <laughs> not bad for a 23-year-old, I guess. But um, yeah, um, it wasn't really the reason. It's not the best answer at all. Um, there are lots of better answers than that. Most answers are better than that. But um, yeah, this is what I said. And ugh, there's some truth to it, I suppose. But when you think about the past, and you know, I, I, I continued teaching in Istanbul for a long time. And, you know, I got better at being able to answer that question. And a lot of my knowledge came from course books um, that we used in the classes. And a lot of course books actually say, oh, yeah, we use the passive when the subject isn't known or isn't important, which is sometimes true, especially if the subject isn't known. But, you know, that's not really the spirit of it, in my opinion. I think passives are used because we want to put something at the beginning of the sentence into the theme position or the topic position. We want to, if we're talking about, um, okay, let's look at Ilias and the cigarette. If we're talking about Ilias and his cigarette, Ilias is smoking a cigarette. We, we're talking about Ilias, right? This is the topic of the conversation. And the, his smoking a cigarette is sort of new information. 
why would we say the cigarette is being smoked by Ilyas only if we happen to be talking about this particular cigarette? Maybe it's a magic cigarette. Maybe it's a pink cigarette. Maybe it's the cigarette that um, uh, Samuel L. Jackson actually touched. So Ilyas is now smoking some cigarette that's been touched by a major celebrity. Whatever, we're talking about the cigarette. And it's being smoked by Ilyas is now the new information. That is why we would use the passive. Uh, more examples. They're building a massive bridge over the River K. All right, cool. Them is the what we're talking about. They, we're, we're, we've got a pronoun here, so of course we already know who they are. Uh, the bridge building is what we're saying about them. Um, but let's make it passive. A massive bridge is being built over the River Quay. Now it's all about the bridge, baby. This is the topic of the sentence. Perhaps we were talking about it before, or perhaps theme or topic can be used to introduce and assert a new, uh, a new topic. Either way, they're building a massive bridge over the River Kay. We're talking about they. A massive bridge is being built over the River Kay. We're talking about the massive bridge. Okay, so there are lots of different types of theme um, and I don't want to get bogged down into the details because the spirit of them is, is the, the, the most important takeaway, I think, from this podcast. Uh, the beginning of the sentence is usually what we're talking about, whether we've brought it up before or we're asserting a new topic. So when we're talking or writing, we usually connect our ideas together between clauses and sentences, right? What is talking but just lots of different ideas jumping between two people? What is writing but lots of different ideas being pushed together into different paragraphs? What is uh, other, other mediums? What's a presentation but lots of ideas organized in a linear way? What we say or write is related to what was said or written before it unless we're making a clean break and we're, we're starting a new idea, which happens all the time too. Ideas are connected. And in a way, language is nothing more than just a bunch of ideas put together. So generally speaking, we make part of the ream the next theme. Okay, so for example, really, really simple and artificial example, I went to Barbados last year, it snowed. Okay, I is the theme, I went to Barbados last year, it snowed. It, 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 the last year in Barbados snowed. <laughs> so this is, the next sentence starts with the ream or the comment of the previous sentence. Another example. I can't stand it when you make that face. You look like Alexander Armstrong. Okay, so I can't stand it. I is the theme. When you make that face, I can't stand it when you make that face is the ream. You look like Alexander Armstrong. You and your face are in the ream of the first sentence. These are very artificial examples just to show you that we have this sort of rhythm that goes on with dialogues, with writing, with presentations. Um, new information comes after the old information. Okay, so I thought it would be fun to analyse some real English and get some uh, examples. So-called real English. I love that. I love that phrase. Real English. 
How many companies have this real English? How many YouTube videos have real English? Um, anyway, this is going to be some real English. Once you see this whole theme, ream, topic, comment stuff happening, you know, like now, you're going to start noticing it everywhere. Um, when I started thinking about this podcast episode, I really, I couldn't really listen to anyone or watch TV because I was just analyzing where the theme and the ream is whenever anyone was speaking. But anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to give you that horrible curse as well. Um, let's listen to my mum and dad. Um, <laughs> back in, I don't know when it was, about 2018, I did another blog post where I analysed, um, I interviewed my parents. Well, I didn't interview them. I just let them talk for about five minutes. And um, and I analysed their language. We're going to do the same again. It's a different type of analysis because today we're looking at theme and dream. And Let's listen to the whole whole thing. We're going to listen to my, my mum and dad talk for about, like, literally just one minute. And they're talking about their time at university. They met at university, and they're, they're talking about how it was and what it was like at university. So, yeah, let's listen to my mum and dad, uh, who are awesome. Shout out, Peter and Teresa. Um, and, yeah, let's hear them talk about their university days. And I think universities now are not the same. They're not the same for all sorts of reasons. Nor are we the same, as we were saying. <laughs> yes, I changed my subject. I intended to do history and economics. And I was also seduced by politics. So it was partly because there were several very charismatic teachers there. Uh, Sammy Finer and Hugh Barrington and Jean Blondel. And this does not happen with today's youth. When we went to university, we were a privileged yes. 4% or was it Something 2% like percent yes. of the age group, yes. now it's pushing 50%. Yes. Um, we were given grants, mm-hmm. um, we were well looked after, um, three meals a day on campus. Uh, being a campus university was brilliant, you never had to fend for yourself, but in a way you didn't grow up either. No, that's true. In some ways it was like a seventh form after a sixth yeah, form of school yeah. but uh, nonetheless looking back it was the most important thing aspect of my education uh, I loved it and it was the campus we were all and there were only about 600 students in our time and probably about 100 staff uh, and we were all living in this uh, area an old army camp condemned buildings okay lovely stuff aren't they nice are really cool guys like my parents a lot anyway so yeah let's listen to what they said in more detail um here is a section um from from that and i think universities now are not the same they're not the same for all sorts of reasons nor are we the same as we were saying <laughs> this word nor is a really good example uh, so my mum said i think universities now are not the same they're not the same for all sorts of reasons and my dad goes nor are we the same as we were then and this nor is taking um is contrasting um the universities with themselves so that he's taking the ream universities um into his theme uh, more examples let's uh, let's listen again Yes, I changed my subject. I intended to do history and economics, and I was also seduced by politics. So it was partly because there were several very charismatic teachers there, uh, Sammy Finer and 
Hugh Barrington and Jean Bronzel. Yeah, here my dad is um, basically asserting a new topic. So again, theme doesn't have to always refer to something before. If you make something new with theme, you are creating a new topic. You're saying, hey, we're going to talk about this now. And yeah, he said, yes, I changed my subjects. I intended to... Um, so he's, he's talking about himself. And then his second sentence is, it was partly because there were several blah, blah, blah. And the it is about him changing his subject. So that's the ream from before. You see the pattern here. It's really obvious when you start noticing it. Uh, let's go for another example. We were given grants. Um, we were well looked after, um, three meals a day on campus. Uh, being a campus university was brilliant. You never had to fend for yourself. But in a way, you didn't grow up either. Okay, I like this one from my mum here. Uh, she asserts a new topic uh, by saying we were given grants. We were well looked after. So we're talking about we now. Um, and then she says three meals a day on campus. So three meals a day is basically uh, talking about being looked after. We were well looked after, three meals a day on campus. And then she says, being a campus university was brilliant. And again, she's taken the ream from the sentence before, three meals a day on campus, being a campus university. So she's connecting that to the beginning and creating a new topic based on the old topic. Um, you never have to fend for yourself. But in a way, you didn't grow up either. and But in a way, is contrasting fend... You didn't have to fend for yourself, but in a way, is now contrasting the ream of the previous sentence. It's everywhere. You see it everywhere, really. Like, the more, the more you get used to how this works, the more you'll see it. But just noticing isn't enough, right? We'll come, we'll come on to how, how we can actually use this um, in, in our lessons if you're a teacher, but more importantly, as a learner or even just as a person who wants to communicate more clearly, write more clearly, make better presentations. Um, this is totally how we communicate. We produce an idea or someone else produces an idea. You take it, we put it at the beginning of our next sentence or clause or utterance, and then we add something new. Makes sense. It's really obvious if you think about it. And that's that's why it's, it's obvious, because we're humans, and this is how humans think. Language is nothing but a collection of ideas. So let's go back to Hannah. I'm going to answer Hannah's question. <laughs> and the answer um, to Hannah's question, you know, what difference does it make? That's not exactly what she was asking. But what difference does it make when you put the modifier before or after the modified in this case? Brian, wanting to make an impression on Anna, took her to a luxurious restaurant. Wanting to make an impression on Anna, Brian took her to a luxurious restaurant. How are these different? Well, it basically, I think, depends on the context and what was said before. These sentences are not in isolation. These sentences belong to a bigger text. Sometimes, I mean, perhaps this is the beginning of a text, and that's okay. And if it is, it's asserting a new topic. And I think Brian, wanting to make an impression on Anna, took her to a luxurious restaurant. It feels like it's asserting a new topic. We've got a name at the beginning, not a pronoun. You know, yeah, if, if there was a larger context, uh, we might be using the word he, for example. But it also could be after talking about someone else, maybe, like Javid. Uh, we were talking about Javid for a minute, and now we're talking about Brian. So it becomes Brian, 
asserting a new, yeah, I guess that's asserting a new topic. But the second sentence, wanting to make an impression on Anna, Brian took her to a luxurious restaurant. Perhaps um, we were talking about uh, making an impression or how much Brian likes Anna or how he wants to impress her or how difficult Anna may be to impress or how much Anna likes luxurious, uh, likes being in- impressed. <laughs> um, we m- Wanting to make an impression on Anna being at the beginning of this sentence may be strongly related to what happened before. We don't know what happened before. These are probably made-up sentences. What happened before doesn't exist. So we can only speculate. But none of that's too important right now. Because what does this mean? What does this mean for you? What does this mean if you want to communicate better in English or or write better or, or make better presentations or, you know, do a TED talk sometime. Well, yeah, here's my, here's what I want to say about this. If you're giving a talk or a presentation, think about theme and ream. Think, think about how these ideas work when you're planning your presentation. Think about how you can take one topic, give new information, take the new information and make that the next topic and give new information about that. And this sort of dance, this sort of pattern will make your ideas in your presentation jump from one to another seamlessly and smoothly. If you're writing a report or an essay, everything will be clearer and easier to understand if you just think a little bit about theme and ream beforehand. Take an idea, start with an idea, assert a theme, modify it, talk about it, give some information about it, take that new information, make that the new theme, and continue until your thought is complete, until the idea is full. And that is when you start a new paragraph. If you want to assert a new theme, if you want to move, pivot, probably that's a new paragraph. And finally, if you find yourself in one of those situations where you're having difficulty communicating with someone, you're just not clicking with each other, just take a minute to consider how your ideas are weighted in your clauses, your sentences, your utterances. Again, this theme ream, this topic comment, this might solve your problem with communicating with someone who may be having communication difficulties themselves. All right. Okay. Cool. We got deep. We got very deep there. But um, yes, uh, that's what I wanted to talk about today. And um, thanks very much if you're still here. Um, send me an email if you, especially if you disagree, uh, or if you have any other questions like Hannah did. Uh, some questions will make it to podcast episodes if they make me think ridiculously deeply enough about things like this one did. Thanks very much, and talk at you next time. Ooh.